Hello, everyone. Welcome to our second uh, Your Amigos podcast paper of the month. The first one was a smashing success. We had James Easton from Memorial talking about... Actually, it was the second. Had... Andrea Apollo did the first one, Brian. I hate to interrupt so early oh, on in the shoot. podcast. Shoot, yeah. I forgot about no, it. Okay. okay, we're going to get... Go, go, keep going. Keep going. Don't worry about that. It's a minor mistake compared to the other ones you made. <laughs> oh, my God. This is... <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third uh, Your Amigos podcast paper of the month. We had Andrea Apollo in a bladder cancer study. We had James Easton in a neoadjuvant prostate. And we're going to stay in the neoadjuvant space and look at two very interesting studies that looked at dual checkpoint inhibition in the neoadjuvant bladder space. Um, and uh, we're actually going to kick off and have Tom summarize some of the single agent data. He was involved with the study, and I know there was one other. Just to set the stage for what the data is for neoadjuvant immune therapy in bladder cancer, and then we'll, we'll dive into the papers. And then Pam Tom? and Mikhail, you can both introduce yourself maybe when you start talking about your papers. Yep. So um, let's uh, so just very briefly, um, over the last um, 18 months, there have been two studies, one with pembrolizumab uh, and one with atezolizumab. The pembrolizumab gave three cycles of drug, Andrea's Necky's excellent work, um, and they show path CR rates um, somewhere between 30 and 40 percent, depending on which data cut you look at. Um, and um, the, uh, they also did some bi interesting biomarker work, which uh, showed TMB was relevant, um, less so for pd one And there was some then some secondary biomarker work with others, uh, proteins, um, mutations, PBRM1 was in there and one or two others. But nothing really super consistent because when you looked, we then did the Abacus neoadjuvant st study, only two cycles, not three. Um, past CR rates, uh, about 5% behind. Um, uh, similar um, demographics of the two groups of patients. Um, and the biomarker work from that showed that um, the CD8 infiltration seemed to be very relevant. Um, TMB and PDL1 didn't really pan out. Uh, we looked at Granzyme B and showed that activated CD8 uh, was relevant. Uh, there was some quite interesting work on treated tissue and biomarkers in treated tissue, which hasn't been well reported. Um, and essentially, it's complicated by the fact that PATH-CR patients don't have that much, you know, you can't do an analysis on those patients. But there seem to be some cell cycle genes were popping out. And that then really set the scene for these two excellent papers. Uh, and, um, and Mikel, if you want to go first, introduce yourself and talk about your IP-NEVO study and then, Pam, directly after that, if you want to have a few minutes on your Durva-Tremi trial, then maybe we can come back together and go from there. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, this is uh, Michiel van Rijden, medical oncologist in, uh, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, so, yeah, so, so um, in the Nabucco study, uh, which we, uh, we published this month, um, what we did is we wanted to see how, uh, how effective, how, how ipilimumab and uh, nivolumab would work in high-risk uh, bladder cancer. And in the study, we chose uh, stage 3, so stage 3A and stage 3B, uh, as this is uh, a group of patients we, which we think is an urgent uh, clinical need of better treatments and where we think uh, a potentially more toxic regimen would be, uh, would be justified. So in this study, we uh, recruited 24 patients. Uh, we uh, um, had to, as a primary endpoint um, the time to resection. So uh, how many patients would uh, have their resection within 12 weeks? We met the primary endpoints. 96% uh, of patients had their resection within 12 weeks. Uh, and one patient had it uh, a few weeks later. So all of the patients had uh, their resections. 
Um, a second very important uh, endpoint, of course, was uh, PathCR. In our uh, study, this was uh, defined uh, as a complete lack uh, of uh, cancer cells. And uh, we were really thrilled with uh, how many uh, great responses we saw. So we had uh, in this, uh, this quite advanced group of patients, 46% uh, pathological complete response. And uh, this met uh, the secondary efficacy endpoint. And uh, we also had uh, a few patients who had only a focus of uh, CIS or uh, TA, so non-invasive uh, cancer cells. And uh, if you would add those, it would be 58% who had uh, no invasive cancer at surgery. Um, that's a, Pam, do, that's you, do you want to talk about your, your clinical data first, and then we're going to come back to the biomarkers after? Would that be okay? Sure, that's fine. I mean, uh, as you know, we this was a single institution study, our study with tremolimumab and dervalumab as a combination in a neoadjuvant space. And, you know, we've been leading this space in terms of uh, neoadjuvant or pre-surgical trials, a single institution study since 2006, you know, prior to any FDA approvals of immune checkpoint agents in bladder cancer. So our uh, neoadjuvant bladder cancer trial in 2006 was actually the first ever neoadjuvant trial. And so this combination study just built on that because that was an anti-CTLA-4 study. And now this was an anti-CTLA-4 plus anti-PDL-1. Um, I think unlike a lot of other groups, we see CTLA-4, anti-CTLA-4 as a backbone for a lot of trials. Um, and we tend to combine, we start first with anti-CTLA-4 and then combine from there. So this was the anti-CTLA-4 plus anti-PDL-1 in patients with... Uh, cisplatin ineligible patients, I should say. So they were not eligible for cisplatin due to multiple medical issues and comorbidities, as you're well aware of. Um, and this was also a group of patients who had um, bulky disease as well um, in a cohort of patients where we were able to look at pathologic CR, um, not just in the T2 uh, sort of disease, but also uh, more bulky stage disease, T3, T4 diseases. So we were able to see in 28 patients that this was rather a safe regimen. We gave two doses of uh, the antibodies. And so um, we observed uh, as primary endpoint was safety, we observed that only 21% of patients had a grade three or greater immune related adverse event. And these were mostly asymptomatic laboratory abnormalities. I mean, really it was uh, lipase elevation, ALT elevation, those kinds of things. And we only had two patients with uh, hepatitis and colitis, one each. Um, and the path CR rate was around 37 and 38%, and downstaging to PT1 or less was about 58% of patients. And, and, you know, impressively for us, it was really these bulky stage disease patients who had uh, on uh, exam under anesthesia, they had big bulky masses that we were able to see a path CR about the same thing, about 40% or so. And that was uh, reassuring to think that this could then move forward in these cisplatin ineligible patients. And of course, for us, as, as we'll talk about, getting the access to the tumor tissues um, really is the immune monitoring strength of our, our group that where we took that to look at biomarkers. So it sounds like pretty similar populations in both studies, higher risk, past CR rates in the 40 plus or minus percent range, downstaging in almost 60 percent. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was there a difference in toxicity? Mikhail, what was the grade three toxicity in your study? Yeah, it seemed I've, to be higher. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So our uh, toxicity was uh, was uh, definitely higher. It was uh, a grade three, four, um, 50, uh, 55% of patients, um, some of which were lipase and amylase uh, elevations. But then mm -hmm. if you would subtract those, it would still be 41% of patients who had a grade three or higher um, adverse event. Any reason that different regimens would produce that? Or do you think it's just small numbers? 
Well, I think the combination we use is with the epilimumab uh, 3, uh, nivolumab 1. And I think this is, okay. uh, is in line with um, studies in the metastatic setting that this is just a more toxic regimen and, and most of the time also more efficacious uh, regimen uh, than, than the lower dose epilimumab, for example, and probably also the, the Tremi uh, 1 uh, dosing. Got it. Let's just move and, to the biomarker piece, which is really interesting. Before we get there, though, the disease-free survival um, or relapse-free survival and OS in both of your studies, I thought was really striking because you did have this really high-risk group. Does either of you want to actually just comment on that? Do you think that's because the numbers are small? And I think that anything we do, particularly from a biomarker perspective, moving on from here, we have to put that caveat in that um, you know, all of these trials are somewhere between 25 and 100 patients. And we're now going to talk about you know, cross-trial biomarker analysis. So that is quite relevant. But just, I mean, did your gut feeling was, do you think that your, your feeling is the combination is doing something? And do you think feel the CHLA-4 is, is adding to the party? And Pam, would you like to start with that? Yeah, I think that's been always how we've looked at it, right? I mean, uh, it, clearly people think of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 or PDL-1s as, you know, they use them interchangeably because they feel they fall into the same basket of immune checkpoint therapy agents. Um, but we've always looked at them mechanistically and uh, CTLA-4 really works at a priming stage of T-cell responses. So it really drives the repertoire of T-cells and it's something we've seen over and over again. Whereas PD-1 and PDL one tends to work more at the terminally differentiated stages of the T-cells. And so it's really reinvigorated an already antigen experienced population. So when you take those things into consideration, um, you really do you do tend to think of an anti-CTLA-4 therapy as driving a different repertoire than what previously existed. And because of that, you can then have these long-term memory responses that could then lead to the overall survival benefit that we're seeing with the combination. Uh, and Pam, on that issue, you, you talked a little bit about in the paper, a little bit about, because um, some of the work with pdl one TMB and CD8 didn't pan out in the same way as some of the single arm trials. Mm -hmm. And you said that that supported the, uh, the activity of CTLA-4 in this setting. Do you want to just expand on that? Because I know in Nature Medicine, you've got very limited word count. And <laughs> yeah. there's obviously, uh, I'm sure they cut, <laughs> some, they did certainly cut a huge amount of what actually the, 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 the meat of that bony structure, because it is so important for the audience um, to get a feeling for what, why you feel that that's different. Absolutely. I think, you know, in, in most of our studies we've looked at, when we looked at a PD-1 or PDL one monotherapy study compared to CTLA-4 monotherapy study or the combination of the two together, and again, this is from the immunotherapy platform at MD Anderson, you know, we've looked at over 5,000 patients with longitudinal data from these kinds of trials. Um, and clearly you can see that if you have pre-existing uh, CD8 T cells that are already within the tumor, you tend to do better to PD-1. But for a CTLA-4-based regimen, you don't need to have, you could have very low CD8s and actually the anti-CTLA-4 can drive the CD8 responses up in the post-treatment sample and that can lead to the response. So the pre-treatment biopsy, which is where we keep looking for the biomarkers may not always tell the full story when you have an anti-CTLA-4 on board because the anti-CTLA-4 is quite capable of changing that immune microenvironment within the tumor tissues and making it then become a responder. And so that's why I don't think you can compare what the previous monotherapy studies with anti-PD-1 and PDL one found in terms of biomarker um, with a combination study that involved anti-CTLA-4. Mikael, intrigued by your tertiary lymphoid structure data and your B-cell data. Do you want to just expand on those two for me before that's not being described? Mean, Pam described the T-cell, the tertiary lymphoid structures, but we haven't focused on that so much in the past. Do you want to talk about how you measure tertiary lymphoid structures, what they mean, and then go into B-cell biology for me? 
Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I think I, I just wanted to add add a little bit to uh, what was just said because the, this is a very um, uh, important point of the paper, and it was striking to see that uh, um, even though we we didn't know of each each other's uh, publication, uh, of course uh, we had uh, the similar language in 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 how we see those uh, T cell biomarkers that that uh, these uh, regimens are able to to make uh, uh, tumors respond that don't really have that much pre existing T cell immunity. Um, and, and I think that uh, that was uh, quite quite a striking finding that uh, uh, that uh, that anti-CTLA-4 is adding, which which is also it seems to be doing in other uh, tumor types like melanoma. So I think there 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 is really something there with the addition of anti-CTLA-4. Um, but your question was about uh, the B cells and TLS, um, and that was um, uh, quite um, so. So TLS, we started quite uh, quite early, doing um, uh, involving some uh, collaborators from uh, from Switzerland, actually, who did uh, most of the TLS uh, work uh, for us. So they uh, both looked at H uh, and E slides, where you can can already quite readily identify uh, TLS. Um, but they also uh, uh, looked at uh, multi with uh, multiplex immunofluorescence to get a bit of a better sense um, uh, for the maturity of uh, these T, uh, TLS. Um, so what we found is that uh, there was no difference in TLS in our series uh, at baseline. I think we uh, should here remark that TUR tissue is is not ideal for doing these kinds of things. So uh, you know, as as, as uh, all uh, bladder cancer. Uh, uh, doctors know TUR is, is just very fragmented tissue. There, uh, you know, um, it's, it's not, not the greatest tissue for biomarker uh, for these types of biomarkers. Um, nevertheless, um, uh, we were we managed to to assess it, but uh, we didn't really see a difference. Um, whereas, Mikhail, can I can I interrupt yeah. a sec? Can you can you explain to me tertiary lymphoid structure? It's not a term I'm familiar with. These are these are lymphoid aggregates in the tumor, outside the tumor. Yeah, so they're they're mostly outside of the tumor, so they can really uh -huh. be at the at the tumor border or sometimes uh, almost in in the tumor uh, at the tumor margin, and uh, mm -hmm. they can also be a bit further outside mm -hmm. uh, of the tumor. And they basically have um, are very small. It looks like very small uh, lymph nodes, um, and the, the common uh, the current belief uh, current thinking is that that these are structures where. Uh, the the anti cancer uh, T cell response or the immune response might uh, T cells uh, might be and formed. B cells yeah there's B cells and T yeah. cells in there got it um, so and what we're seeing is on treatment that these uh, these TLS increase uh, in responders um, another finding which was was um, actually also found in uh, in lung cancer um, is that in patients who receive steroids so in our study we had to uh, treat with steroids in in uh, a number of patients. And uh, that really brought down the TLS in the uh, on-treatment uh, tissue. And go with, with the B-cell story for me, Mikael. Yeah, so with B-cell, it's, it's a bit for us, uh, was, it was a bit of a confusing story how we, we uh, should bring that. Because uh, we found in the RNA sec that uh, for the, the differentially expressed genes, that it seemed that, that uh, some B-cell genes were overexpressed. Uh, we then looked in our uh, multiplex immunofluorescence uh, data, and, and also there it seems like uh, uh, like B cells uh, were a bit higher in in uh, responders. Um, so that's that's um, a bit contradictory to to recent data. Although there have also been uh, been series uh, tumor series where where uh, B cells were were not uh, were maybe uh, immunosuppressive in, instead of uh, helping to the immune response. Um, so. 
you know, this is a small series, and like I said, it's TUR tissue, so it's always a bit difficult to draw very strong conclusions uh, if you have uh, an NS24. So we, we uh, in the end, wanted to be careful with our conclusions and, and concluded that, at least in our series, we didn't see um, an increased uh, level of B-cell activity in, uh, in responders. Pam, so one, of the think... unique things, uh, one of the new things, Pam, about your, your study was, uh, or the studies that both of you performed, was you were able to get on-treatment tissue um, how did you utilize that and what can you do with it in the future and what does it tell us about the mechanism of action of the combination? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is, of course, in our study, we, you know, we had bulky tissues. Again, I think uh, uh, a large number, 40, 50 percent of our patients had these big bulky tumors. So our TUR samples were a bit better in terms of looking at uh, immune monitoring data. So we did find that tertiary lymphoid structures um, correlated with outcome and, and correlated with responses. And I think that's been shown uh, by Jen Wargo's group for um, other tumor types, such as uh, melanoma and uh, another study published in Nature uh, with sarcoma. Um, and we also have data for renal cell carcinoma, also a similar finding with ter where tertiary lymphoid structures predict for outcome. Again, small numbers of patients and so need to be looked at in, in larger studies for sure, but it's, a, it's sort of becoming um, quite the hallmark feature that once you have T and B cells collaborating together in these uh, lymph node-like structures within the tumor microenvironment, it indicates that the, there's a better chance of having an anti-tumor response because these immune immunologic features are already part of the tumor microenvironment. So from that standpoint, we also looked at post-treatment samples, as you pointed out, um, and because you know you have the entire cystectomy sample, and again, it was a single institution study, so we're able to have all of that sample all of that uh, tumor tissues for immune monitoring data. And we really do think that the path CRs, even though they do not have tumors within them, we actually think you can do very nice immune monitoring data, data because it tells you something about what the immune subsets are within those samples. And those are the immune subsets that have had an impact or played a role in that tumors not being present. So we actually do use those samples to, um, to look at, for example, gene expression data um, by nanostring um, and then uh, IHC data or multiplex uh, IF data to look for what the immune subsets are and even cite off to try and get deeper details into the immune subsets. So, you know, it's an important point we did to a, make. We, we did a similar thing, Pam. We showed exactly the same. We showed that that the treated tissue, the immune infiltrate in the PATH-CR patients or the MPR patients, major pathological results, was really fascinating, was really intense, upregulation of a number of key immune biomarkers. Also, there were a number of uh, our gene analysis data showed a number of pair genes were upregulated as well. I think that treated tissue shouldn't be, be thrown away. That is as valuable. Wouldn't it be interesting to compare the CR patients for the two, whether or not the combination or the monotherapy was very different uh, to achieve that path CR? That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Because I do think it's at the end of the day, we're still going to need similar immunologic subsets to lead to the tumor rejection. So whether it was, you know, whether you got that subset of immune cells because you gave monotherapy or whether you required combination therapy to get it, it's still, you know, going to be important to see what those subsets are. So I, I agree with you. And I also think it's important point that we make that, um, you know, that the path CR samples can be studied. Um, I think reviewers who looked at the paper were confused by why we were studying um, samples that were path CRs. And we had to make the argument that, you know, we're looking at the immune subsets, not just the tumor cells. And a lot of times when you're looking at samples where you have tumor cells, actually what you're looking at are resistance mechanisms, not what really led to the response.
And it sounds like you think that post-treatment tissue is actually more valuable for CTLA-4-based therapy for the reasons you Yes, mentioned. I think because, again, CTLA-4 yeah. is recruiting a different repertoire of cells, and it's important to take a look at what those might be. And, and even though you saw higher, it seems like higher CR rates with doublet over monotherapy, would you hypothesize that the real benefit is going to be in that durability, those relapse-free survival curves, you know, noting the small numbers, but is that a reasonable hypothesis? I've said that all, all along since I've been in this field for so long now oh, that good. immune checkpoint therapy <laughs> really is not about response rates, right? This is not chemotherapy. It's yeah. not response. It's really the durability of the response and the long-term survival. So yeah. I really think that's what we have to look for in the long run. Um, Mikel, just my last biomarker question. Um, you did some work on um, DDR signatures, DNA damage repair signatures, um, and you did some work on TMB. We haven't had a huge amount of joy in urothelial cancer looking at mutational signatures correlating with response. Um, did you look at dynamic changes to gene signatures with therapy? Um, what do you think about DDR as a signature? Do you think it's just a surrogate of TMB? If so, TMB didn't work. What's the story with that? Because that was something which I thought a bit about and didn't come to a conclusion on. Yeah, so um, uh, for, for our study, um, we looked uh, first at TMB. Um, there we saw a trend towards uh, better response in, in TMB high. Um, also DDR, there was, uh, was a bit of a difference uh, b between those two. It's always, of course, a question whether those two, how they relate to each other. Um, and uh, actually what was really interesting, what I, what I think is now starting to, to emerge as... Um, um, uh, as, as something that, that has been seen in, in several bladder cancer studies is uh, the TGF-beta pathway activity, uh, which we saw uh, to, uh, to associate with, uh, with non-response. So I think that that was a nice, uh, interesting finding as well. I think for TMB, um, you know, it was borderline. Uh, I think we need a larger series to, to know. And it, it has been, um, you know, there has been just, just a bit uh, diff uh, different uh, results from, uh, from different studies. Um, I think in, in your study, uh, Tom, uh, in the Abacus, it, it didn't make it. In some no. studies, it did. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's still a bit uh, too early to say if this is going to be a, a biomarker in this setting. Overall, hey. Pam, uh, Michael, do you, Jen, do you feel that the quality of the T-cell immune infiltrates going to end up in this setting being more important than TMB? Pam, what's your thought on that? No, I, so we didn't find a TMB correlated here. Um, again, you know, it's it's been sort of a question mark as to wh which tumor types and in which setting metastatic versus our earlier localized disease setting when when that'll be an issue. Um, so I do think, yes, TMB is important because, again, I think that's where you get the antigens from that T cells can see. But again, even in low tumor mutation uh, um, burden, like prostate cancer, you know, we published a paper on that showing that even in patients who have low tumor mutation burden, the T cells are still quite capable of recognizing the antigens and that there are other resistance mechanisms at play. So, you know, as an immunologist, I really think T cells need only a single antigen. And you know that cancers have definitely more than one. So it's just about what the quality of that antigen is and about the presentation. So um, yes, TMB gives you more lottery tickets so that you can get a good antigen, um, but it still may just come down to one or two great antigens that are around there, and uh, we need to identify what those may be. So TMB is really a crude measure of antigen load, not, like you say, it, it only takes one. It's not a measure of specificity. It's just a, a crude exactly. marker. Exactly. Yeah. Brian, do you want to wrap this up? Yeah. Uh, if you're done with biomarkers, so I have a question for all three of you, actually. Basically, where do we go from here? So 
um, my hypothesis would be that in cisplatin ineligible patients, you, you basically just take them to cystectomy and go from there. So they don't really have a standard of care so that the, this kind of therapy could find a home. I know there are chemo plus IO studies going on, which haven't panned out in the metastatic setting. And I mostly blame Tom for that, but I know they're ongoing it's in the totally neo setting. But, <laughs> but maybe each of the three of you, Pam, you can start. Where do you see, are there big trials planned? Should we do that? What, you know, Brian, before, how do we, before we come to further? that question, Brian, can I ask a different one? Just, we will come to your question because I'm always, always interrupted. I apologize. Um, both of you, I just want to hear your opinion on adjuvant versus neoadjuvant. We've got these mixed results in the adjuvant setting. We've got a positive trial and negative trial. Yeah. We haven't seen the detail yet. Do you think this neoadjuvant approach is going to be better? Is it more important? Do you need to have the, the, the antigens there from a bulky tumor perspective? Can I just hear your, both of your opinions on that? First? So I, I really think the neoadjuvant setting is very important. I mean, I think because that is where you're educating the T cells on the antigens that are present within that tumor. Um, and so that helps you to have then those memory T cells for long-term survival and relapse-free survival. I think the adjuvant setting is tricky. I mean, you do a great surgery and, you know, where are the antigens that the T cells are going to see? So um, that, that's, that's certainly a question mark in my mind um, because you really do need T cells to see the antigens um, in order for you yeah. to expand them and, and, and develop memory cells. Uh, Mikhail, do you want to answer Brian's question about where we go next? Um, yeah, sure. My, uh, I think also that that uh, new adjuvant treatment uh, for immunotherapy makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, and actually, this has already uh, been shown uh, um, in preclinical models, but also in, in, in one of the first uh, IPNIVO clinical trials of new adjuvant therapy in melanoma, where my colleague uh, Christian Blanc uh, did a really elegant study of, of new adjuvant versus adjuvant combination therapy. And not only found that that new adjuvant works uh, a bit better, although the groups were small, but also found that uh, the development of TCR clones was uh, seemed to be more robust in the new adjuvant setting, and that's uh, that's that really fits uh, the the thought that that Pam just mentioned about uh, you know getting a more robust uh, anti-cancer uh, uh, immune response. What about clinical development moving forward? Yeah, what so do you, what do each of you think? So I Go think um, that that what what is shown here is is that um, in patients who who lack pre-existing T cell immunity, um, combination therapy might be a, a really good idea. I still think that there is some um, uh, patients out there um, who who have really good pre-existing immunity, for example, or PDL one positive, have high CD eight cells, have uh, immune signatures, and and we would need to see what kind of kind of uh, combination of biomarkers work uh, works best. But I think. These patients might, you know, in these patients, maybe monotherapy might be enough. Um, uh, whereas for some patients, uh, a, a more extensive uh, combination sure. is needed. There's also other drugs that are now uh, starting to, to come up, like enfortimofredotin, that, that seems to be a drug, uh, an antibody drug conjugate that, that could uh, probably be uh, uh, combined with, uh, with IO uh, quite easily. Um, so I think there's, there's still a lot of work to do in this space. Okay. Pam, what do you think in terms of clinically moving this forward? Is it ready for a big phase three? Would you do more biomarker work? What do you think? So I think it's ready for a bigger phase two, for sure. I, I, don't, I don't know that I would okay. push it right now for the phase three, because I think, you know, the safety question still has to be addressed. I think we clearly showed it as tolerable and safe at two doses in a Tremiderva study. I think the Epineva, we still have to question that a little bit. Maybe it needs to be Q6 weeks. And do we have Q6 weeks that we can give in a new adjuvant space? Because, you know, Q3 weeks, of mm -hmm. course, is, is what we're used to with the three megs per keg. But 
maybe, you know, with the lung data showing the Q6 weeks is, is better tolerated is something to consider. But those are questions that I think we're still asking. Um, and so the two different companies, of course, BMS for Ipinevo and uh, AZ for the Tremiderva. I mean, we, we need to have those discussions with them internally. But I do think both companies are, are willing to move forward. And I think from a clinical standpoint, it makes sense to move forward because these patients, especially these cisplatin ineligible patients, um, tend to not have much in terms of what can be given yeah, to right. them. Um, and we owe it to them to develop this further. I mean, it might be Tom, I'll give you the final word. Can I give you the final word? You can. We don't normally do that, Brian. We'll have a go. We'll see how it gets on. I'm, I'm waiting for the interruption. So the, the neoadjuvant area might be the optimal area to investigate these drugs. There's lots of uh, neoadjuvant kicking around, but the patients have got essentially quite a long outcome, hasn't yet spread. Uh, you can give the drugs pre-surgery, um, which looks really attractive. I would be pursuing this approach. Uh, I think this may end up being the best place for these drugs, and we need to ask that question. But we need to make sure we do it in robust randomized trials. One of the concerns previously is we've rapidly approved drugs in single arm studies and then come back with big, bigger data sets, which have struggled with that. We don't currently have the right biomarker to do to stratify right. as it currently stands. But, but the work that we've done on biomarkers, I think, as a group, we've shown that they are relevant. And we've also think I show, think we've shown they're different from the, uh, the metastatic space, which I think is also important. So, um, Brian, do you want to wrap it up? I was going to say, I'm going to give you $150 million. Would you do the phase three or would you first do phase two development work? I'd, I'd be doing it. So I'd do it. I would do this trial. But you would say that. I'm, I, I think the, 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 the past CR rates are 40. But chemotherapy, neurogen chemotherapy, five to uh, the meta-analysis, 5% survival benefit, 13%. Yeah. So chemo, that's not magic, number one. Number yep. two, the path CR rates chemotherapy are on in the 40%. And we've hit that with two or uh, you know, eight weeks of neoadjuvant immune combination therapy. We've biologically shown a really active setting um, from, an from an immune perspective. I think we should do it. Right on. All right. Pam, Mikhail, thank you so much for your time. Congrats on the Nature Medicine papers. Probably even a bigger congratulations on being the third Your Amigos yeah, it's probably paper than one podcast from a career perspective. I'm, sure <laughs> I'm going to put it on CVs. my CV. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of our goals, yeah. to make it on people's CVs. So. We're very excited Thanks, by everyone. that, Pam. We're very excited <laughs> yeah. by that. Listen, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you both so much. And it was great. You know, you, it's great we made the time. I'm really pleased. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot, yeah. guys. Thank, thank you. Both. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.